Listeners, it's Sam here again, and just the usual shout out for our brilliant sponsors before this week's show. Paces Ahead have courses for the start of 2024, and listeners, here's a possible sweetener for you. I will be there at their first course of 2024. That's the 16th to the 19th of January. Please do come along and say hi if you catch me. It would be great to meet some of you if you're there. But there is also a course the following week from the 20th to the 23rd of January for those of you sitting in the first diet of 2024. Not only that, but they also have courses lined up for May as well. The 20th to the 23rd of May and the 28th to the 31st of May. I highly recommend booking on early to avoid disappointment. They very regularly get oversubscribed. If you can't make a course though, past tests have got you covered with their market-leading online revision paces resource. I think most pacer sitters would agree this is more or less essential to have to complement your ward-based preparation. So to get access, just click any of the links in the show notes labelled past test. But enough on that for now, let's get started on this week's episode. Hello and welcome along to this episode of the Pre-Paces Podcast with me, Dr. Sam Williams, where we help you fulfil your exam potential in the MRCP. Today, we discussed thyroid disease with consultant endocrinologist Dr. Jody Sabin, who gave us an amazing insight into how thyroid disease can come up in paces and how best to structure your approach to these patients. We really appreciate all the feedback we get from you guys, so if you enjoy the podcast or want to suggest a topic for future episodes, then let us know on Twitter and Instagram at prepacespodcast or prepacespodcast at gmail.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss an episode. We know some of you will have exams coming up very soon, so all the best of luck to those of you sitting. And most importantly, we hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the Pre-Paces Podcast, the only podcast that's half Radio Norwich and half Kumar and Clark's clinical medicine. My name is Dr. Sam Williams, and I want to thank you for joining us for today's episode, where we're discussing a topic which always gave me wide eyes and a big lump in my throat every time I thought about it, and that is thyroid disease. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Jody Sabin. Jody is a consultant in endocrinology and diabetes at Gloucester and Cheltenham Hospitals and has taught many Paces candidates over the years, including me. Jody, thank you so much for joining us today. And I guess thyroid disease is something you see on a fairly regular basis. Yeah, no, absolutely. So thyroid disease is, is very common, and um, particularly in our outpatient setting. Um, so it's probably one of the most common things that, that we deal with on a daily basis. And it's something which we know has come up again time and time again in paces. So there's no doubt that hopefully this will um, come in handy for our listeners so Jodie's going to be guiding us through the approach to thyroid disease in paces, how it might be presented to us. And then, as usual, we'll talk through some common examiner questions on investigations and management. And not only that, but Quiz the Consultant is back. Every consultant guest who comes on the podcast is subjected to a quick fire quiz on a specialist subject of their choosing with the proviso that it can't be related to medicine. So Jodie, what have you named as your specialist subjects and why? So I went with the Great British Bake Off on the uh, the principle that I figured most people will probably have seen it, and uh, it's the only thing I could think of that might provide a bit of entertainment. And the irony is not lost on us all. <laughs> yeah. So without further ado, let's jump into the action and talk about thyroid disease. <laughs> So thyroid disease can mainly be found in the context of the station five. And those are the brief clinical consultations where there's two 10 minute stations in sequence. It could also be found in the context of the longer history taking station, but we're going to be discussing it in the context of a station five. But a lot of the things that we talk about will be transferable to a longer, more comprehensive history taking station. So just to recap for the listeners, Jody, station five, you get five minutes before the station where the candidates get to read a scenario about what they're going to see. 
They'll then have eight minutes to take a history, perform a focused examination, and then explain the management plan to the patient. And after that, they have two minutes of examiner questions. So Jody, starting right at the beginning, what sort of notes in the scenario before you even enter the station might tip the candidates off that this is a thyroid-centered station? So there's certainly a few different things that can present. So one of the more common presentations that is used for station five is certainly thyroid eye disease. It may be something like this patient's presenting with um, a discomfort in their eyes or difficulty moving their eyes, or that they might have noticed a change in their appearance of their face. So those are sort of clues that might make you start thinking about is this thyroid disease. It's a very common thing, so it's very easy for them to find patients who will still have ongoing signs, even if just, you know, it's been treated and, and sort of way down the line. So, so I think it's one of the more common things that you may come across. It's definitely worth just always having it at the back of your mind. The other thing that might present is that they've um, told you that the patient's got a neck lump or um, that they've noticed some tenderness or some swelling in their neck. And, and that may also be a lead into, again, thinking about the thyroid. The other thing will be if people have got specific symptoms, so weight loss or um, palpitations or anxiety or tremors, that tends to be sort of the main sort of cohort of sort of presentations. But obviously they're very nonspecific and, and don't sort of get sort of too sort of tunnel vision in terms of thinking about the firewood with those because obviously that can also apply to lots of different situations as well it affects lots of different parts of you so it can present in lots of different ways so it's just having an open mind about thinking about the firewood with with any sort of presentation really and the other thing to note about those three distinct presentations thyroid eye disease neck lumps and a thyrotoxic patient or a patient um, reporting of symptoms of thyroid disease is that it's important for you to ask about each of those individually regardless of what the presenter complaint is oh yeah and absolutely if you've got somebody who you think has got a thyroid problem then you need to make sure that you cover all of those things because that's all relevant to the patient um, and it will guide you in terms of your management and how how you approach things so um so even if they present with their eye disease you still want to ask them about the rest of their thyroid status um, and likewise if they present with a neck lump and um, don't just focus on the neck you need to think about the other aspects through it all as well so Excellent. So specifically in a patient who, as part of the scenario, mentions they have puffy eyes or have noticed a bulging of the eyes, what are the key things that you want to ask early in the station to demonstrate you've got a good understanding of thyroid eye disease? So like most things, it's starting with the basics and what's the thing that's bothering the patient the most? Um, Because it might be that they've lost their vision. It might be that they've actually just noticed some discomfort in their eyes. It might be some redness or swelling. So, you know, find out what's what's most important to the patient, first of all, and then going on from there. So you really want to make sure that you've demonstrated that you understand all of the problems that thyroid eye disease can cause, even if it's not relevant for that individual. So often the most common presentation we see in clinic is very subtle signs of thyroid eye disease. So it can just be a little bit of swelling. It can be a little bit of redness, a bit of discomfort. And often feels like for a lot of patients, like a bit like allergic conjunctivitis. And a lot of them won't necessarily have realised that those symptoms are due to their thyroid. So they'll often think it's hay fever or um, you know, kind of things in the environment. And so it's just trying to get a bit of a clear picture about when these problems started. If this is something they've had for years and it's, you know, every summer with hay fever, then you can probably be reassured that that's what it is. But if this is something completely new that's only been happening over the last few months, then obviously you need to start thinking about what else is going on and, and, and having it at the back of your mind that this may not be something that straightforward. In the more extreme cases, some people will have problems moving their eyes. So ask them whether they've had any problems with their eye movements. Do they feel that they're restricted in any way? Have they lost any parts of their vision? Working out whether they can still, you know, got normal visual focus and can they still read things properly? And, and all of those things are relevant in terms of knowing how quickly you want to do something about the problem that they've got. You've mentioned there about the limitation of eye movement and possible sort of double vision or diplopia secondary to that. Are there any other sort of red flag signs which would make you think this patient is quite unwell and they need urgent referral to an ophthalmologist imminently either the same day or you know within uh, a week or so? Yeah, so the main, the main thing you worry about is if somebody's got visual loss. So um, so the, the part of the primary thyroid disease is they get a lot of inflammation. 
So that inflammation can cause inflammation of the muscles and that can cause restriction of eye movements. Um, so it's not the nerves that's the issue. It's the fact that the muscles are so swollen from the inflammatory response, which is why you get this quite complex ophthalmoplegia that doesn't quite make sense when you think of the nerves supplying the eyes. But when you think of it as just being the muscles, it, it makes complete sense because that's, that's what the problem is. So they often get quite odd combinations of, um, of sort of what would appear to be cranial nerve defects. So those are the patients you definitely want to refer very quickly because they've obviously got a lot of inflammation, they've got restricted eye movements and, and those need seeing, you know, on an urgent basis. And, and likewise, that inflammation can cause problems with visual loss. So if you've, you know, so if you've got somebody who's losing their vision or can't see red colour properly and, uh, and you've got signs of ophthalmoplegia, those are all things that you need sort of a same day assessment by ophthalmology, if possible, at the very least within, within a few days. It's not somebody that you're necessarily going to want to sit around and sort of leave waiting for an outpatient appointment for several weeks. Um, so those are the things that would sort of raise red flags for us to say that this is something that needs do, dealing with urgently. Um, and you just, again, for the exam, you won't, or hopefully you won't get those sorts of patients in the exam. But those are the things that you need to show that you're asking the questions and looking for so that you're showing that you know and understand that, you know, the optic nerve for this person is potentially a compromise if there's a lot of inflammation. So making sure that you've, you've demonstrated that you understand the consequences of what might happen at the severe end of thyroid eye disease. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's something which I think the examiners will pick up on as well. You know, being presented with a red flag like that and maybe not realising the urgency of that would be something that they would probably mark you down on, on the basis that all they're looking for is safe registrars. They're not looking for people who are going to, you know, perform the optic nerve decompression. We're just looking to get them to see the right people. So yeah, definitely important to know those red flags. And I guess one thing from a sort of symptomatic perspective which is noted quite often as well is due to the lid retraction and the lid lag associated with the proptosis in graves uh, or in thyroid eye disease is um, exposure keratitis so do you have, do you ever see many patients who sort of have it so severely that they difficulty in closing the eyelids properly oh yeah so the, so certainly so thyroid eye disease like most things in the spectrum so the patients who are right at the the extreme end of the spectrum with very severe thyroid eye disease, absolutely their eyes are exposed. They can't shut their eyelids properly um, and they are at increased risk of getting infection. So it's really important that um, those are the patients to recognise very early on and, and even just basic advice of, you know, keeping their eyes, you know, with lubricants and keeping them um, moist and trying to avoid, um, you know, sort of infection and things getting in their eyes is really important. So these are all basic things that you can, you can give really good advice to without necessarily... Uh, needed to know the sort of the you know ins and outs of all of the the treatment that ophthalmology would do um but yes absolutely so yeah you do get some people at that right at that end of the spectrum that will will suffer with those problems perfect we'll talk a bit more about the management of thyroid eye disease a little bit later but for now we're going to move on to a patient who's presented instead with a neck lump I guess this is something you must see regularly, Jodie, as well. So what sort of symptoms or what sort of things would you ask a, a patient who's presented with a new le- neck lump? So I think, that, I think that's the key thing. Is, is this new? Is it something that they've had for a very long time? And um, so actually from our, in our clinic, most of our patients have probably had very long standing goiters. So they'll have had a neck lump for years and they may not even realise it's there anymore because they're so used to it. Um, and, and actually the long standing goiters aren't the ones we tend to worry about. If you've got a present, patient who's presented to you with a new neck lump, you want to find out when did it start? Your usual sort of questions that you would ask for any lump or mass that's arising anywhere else in the body so when did it start how long has it been there has it changed size in any way is it painful is it causing any um, difficulty with swallowing or speaking and so you're really trying to find out how much impact this lump is actually having on them and then that kind of guides you a little bit and how urgent you're then going to want to investigate and, and do things for them and then the other important thing is to really establish is is their thyroid status and going back to sort of it's not just about the lump that they've got in their neck is that is there a systemic problem as well have they got an actual issue with their thyroid or do they have a normal thyroid state and and this is a neck lump that is a you know either not the thyroid or a benign nodule that actually we don't necessarily need to worry about nodules on the thyroid are incredibly common goiters are incredibly common it doesn't necessarily mean that there's actually a problem that you need to deal with and um, a lot of it is made as the anxiety on the patient's part of noticing the lump because that usually means cancer for most people in their heads and a lot of our neck lump management is about managing those expectations and reassurance 
Um, thyroid cancers as a whole are actually quite rare. We do pick them up, actually. A lot of them are picked up more incidentally through imaging for other reasons rather than necessarily with patients presenting in the first instance. And actually, most thyroid cancers don't tend to present with signs of over, an overactive thyroid or an underactive thyroid. So if you've got somebody presenting with overactive thyroid signs, then it's probably they've got a multinodular goiter rather than a cancer. But that, those are the things to just sort of bear in mind as to, in your differential as to how you're going to work out which which sort of specialty the patient needs to be referred to in the first instance. Because there's no point sending somebody to the endocrine clinic who has a normal thyroid function and a neclum, because realistically what they need is the ENT team who can do an ultrasound of their thyroid and if needs be a biopsy of that lump. So so it's working out again. It's, it's about being safe and you don't necessarily need to know the different types of thyroid cancer. It's just knowing which patients do you need to refer down the right route um, is as much as an important thing to be able to demonstrate. And now comes probably the bit which I think most people would maybe be most comfortable with, with thyroid disease, which is assessing for thyroid status. So in a patient who is clearly symptomatic from thyroid disease, I think it it takes a bit of practice because I always found it quite difficult to make sure I was covering all the bases when assessing thyroid symptoms, just because it's such a a multi-systemic problem. I adopted like a top to toe approach. So started in the brain with things like mood, anxiety, irritability, and move down from the head down. Is there any way that you remember that better? Or is it just a case of finding your own methods of remembering all the different symptoms? Yeah, I think it's just finding your own method. I guess I mean I see patients with paratoxicosis on, on a daily basis. So I think I know them off the top of my head, know them as common symptoms and the things that we generally ask about. So for us, the main things that we, we tend to, to inquire about are things like weight loss, energy levels, changing bowel habits, whether they've experienced palpitations, um, tremors, anxiety. If they're female, have their periods become affected? Those are the most sort of common sort of presenting features. The best way to do it is just find a system that works for you. And if, if going from head to toe works for you, then that's great. Otherwise, go through on a system basis and cover all your cardiovascular ones, your respiratory symptoms, your GI symptoms. And I think as long as you're doing that, you're not going to miss those symptoms. At the end of the day, thyroid disease can cause symptoms from almost any system. So you're not going to get it wrong, whichever way you do it. Just do it in a way that means you're going to remember everything. The important thing to remember is that some, again, it's a spectrum and not everybody will have all of these symptoms. Some people may only present with a bit of weight loss and that's all there is others have the whole textbook of symptoms and it's very obvious from the moment you meet them that they're thyrotoxic somebody with thyroid eye disease for example they may not actually be thyrotoxic you don't have to have an overactive thyroid to have thyroid eye disease so it's always just important to remember that you can have that thyroid eye disease without having an abnormal thyroid function so you need to ask all of these questions but don't be overly surprised if they actually don't have any of those problems that doesn't take away the diagnosis of thyroid eye disease if they have those clinical signs but you would you would hope in paces that if the examiners are being kind to you it would include at least uh, multiple symptoms which would indicate that they've got a thyroid disorder and although station five is it's a quick station you've only got eight minutes to do everything there are other elements of the history not just the history of presenting complaint which can indicate um, that someone might have thyroid disease and so what other factors of the history would be important to include when seeing someone who you suspect might have thyroid disease yeah, so there's lots of different things that you need to think about and um, family history of any sort of autoimmune disease, either for the individual or for the family. So once you have one autoimmune condition, you're much more likely to get others and there's an increased risk within your family. So and that goes for any autoimmune condition. Once you've got one, always think about the others that this could potentially be. And um, smoking is a big risk factor for, for developing thyroid disease, particularly um, thyrotoxicosis. And if you have thyrotoxicosis and you smoke, your risk of developing thyroid eye disease is huge. So if you've got somebody who smokes and they have thyrotoxic symptoms or they have thyroid eye disease, then you really have to make sure that you're counselling people about the risk of smoking and the fact that they will make their eyes worse if they don't stop smoking. Um, and I think certainly in paces, that's something that they would expect you to be able to pick up on. Um, and then the other thing to think about is what medications are people taking? So although we've talked a lot about Graves' disease, which is an autoimmune condition, um, there are other causes for an overactive thyroid. And most commonly, we'll see um, drugs like amiodarone and lithium that will cause that. 
but also uh, a lot of the newer medications that are being brought out to sort of treat melanomas and, and various other um, cancers. So the MABs recently, uh, the monoclonal antibodies are increasingly, we're seeing thyroid disease with those. The important thing about both the MABs and amiodarone is that they may not actually be taking them at the point of, in time that they actually get their thyroid disease because the thyroid effects can sort of occur one, two, sometimes three years after taking so it's always important just to have the back of your mind and again just demonstrate to the examiner that you know that these medications can cause it but just because they're not on it at the moment doesn't mean that there's something in their past that won't be relevant so it's again it's just sort of demonstrating that knowledge that you're aware of medications that can cause problems and then the other big one to remember certainly for, for women who are childbearing age is pregnancy pregnancy is a very big cause of thyroid disease and usually in the postpartum period um, so it can either trigger off autoimmune conditions or you can develop postpartum thyroiditis. Um, so again, it's always just worth asking about any pregnancy history because that may actually be relevant to, to their presentation. Wow. So I think we've, we've pretty comprehensively covered important aspects of the history of a patient who has come in with a thyroid-related disorder. And you really, really have to have a system memorised because you can't rely on thinking it up in the moment in order to remember all the important thyroid symptoms we've mentioned or to remember the important aspects of the history um, beyond the history of presenting complaint which are relevant to a patient with thyroid disease. So it really is important to make sure you've um, memorised those almost verbatim before you enter the station. And what I would recommend at least is before you enter the station, you should get some paper with which to plan the consultations. And I would always recommend writing down the questions you want to ask just in case you do have a couple of seconds where you don't think of the correct question, you're able to just glance down, see that you've missed palpitations as a potential question to ask, and then you're able to ask it in the station. <laughs> So you've taken a very quick focused history from the patient and now you've got to do an even more focused examination. I think it's important to take your lead from the case that's presented in front of you and it is hugely dependent on the symptoms described. If at first we go through, for example, we've got a patient who's coming with um, puffy eyes or um, diplopia with thyroid related symptoms, what parts of the examination are going to be important for the candidates to demonstrate an understanding of how to examine these sorts of patients, Jody. So you just need to make it quite a big deal of actually just looking at the eyes. I mean, you'll have been looking at that patient's face throughout the whole time you've been talking to them, hopefully. So hopefully you'll have had time to realise what might be going on before you've even fully examined them. So look at the patient um, from the side, look at it from the back, and you're looking for that sort of exophthalmus where they've um, with the bulging eyes, and, and you should be able to see that from all sort of sides of the patient. You know, if it's there, it's very obvious. Um, and it's just, again, just showing that you're looking for it and that you're looking at the side and the back as well. And then having a look at the eyes, have they got any swelling around the eyes? Have, have they got conjunctival injection, which is essentially redness of the conjunctiva from the irritation they get with the eyes? Check their eye movements. Um, so you want to see, can they move their eye in all directions or are they restricted in any pattern? And then also looking for lid retraction. So have they got, um, if their lid back um, so that the sclera is exposed, have they got lid lag? So as you move up, is their lid um, slow to move? Um, and again, it's just sort of, you know, showing that you know what to do with all of those. But the most important thing is, is also just to check their vision. Can they actually see? Can they read? Um, you won't necessarily have to do a full sort of Snellen chart during the exam, but um, at least just check that they can sort of read basic words, you know, count fingers and, and just check that their vision is accurate. Because that's the big red flag that says that you need to do something urgently if, if they've got visual loss. Again, you just need to make sure that you're you're demonstrating that you're looking for all the red flags when you examine them. Yeah, definitely. And I would also say that even if you don't formally do it, what you, you might go to get a fundoscope or you might go to get the Snellen chart. And often, or at least I've heard in my experience that examiners will say, no, thank you very much. You know, you don't need to do a formal Snellen charts. Even, in, you know, you could ask them to read your name badge, so that at least demonstrating you are assessing visual acuity in some way is enough I would say to to do that and you, you may not have to perform a full you know visual acuity assessment but gesturing that you're thinking of assessing in a more formal way uh, is important to demonstrate that you're assessing them thoroughly obviously if you've been given more time than eight minutes even if they do have eye disease you probably will want to palpate the neck 
or at least look at the net to see if there are any lumps, Jodie. Yeah, absolutely. So, and not just lumps either, but you might even just see a thyroidectomy scar. So what you need to remember is that some of these patients may have had their thyroid disease treated already. So you might see evidence of them having had a thyroidectomy and hopefully it might be something that you've already gained from the history. Um, if you can ask about their past medical history, so it, it's absolutely fine to ask them if they've had any history of thyroid disease and they will have been told by the examiners whether they, they're allowed to mention it or not. But if they've got a thyroidectomy scar, they will, they will probably have been told they're allowed to tell you that they've had their thyroid out. So look for the scars, look for any lumps and feel for a goiter. You, again you're looking for other um, reasons as to why they might have this but also if, if the if the eye signs are subtle you also need to think about um, have I actually got the right diagnosis as well and always just have it at the back of your mind that you, you know you you, you as much want to find things to confirm your diagnosis but also if you're not finding confirmation of your diagnosis what else could it be and use that time to just think a little bit about what else what else could we look for that if it isn't that obvious that this is what we're, we're dealing with you said it's fine to ask about their medical history and if they've had previous surgery. It's just important to say that even if someone has had a, a thyroidectomy in the past, they can still become thyrotoxic despite that, can't they? Yeah, so you, yes, because absolutely. So they might have had the entire thyroid removed and they might have only had part of their thyroid removed. So so yeah, it could have just been a partial thyroidectomy. And sometimes when it when it's a multinodular goiter, if there's been a little bit of tissue left behind over time, that can grow back again. Um, so especially if it was done a very long time ago. Um, so historically, uh, thyroidectomies were done for goiters, whereas we wouldn't do them probably anywhere near as much now as, as what maybe, you know, 20, 30 years ago. But a lot of those goiters have grown back over time. And, and so the patients may still present with thyrotoxicosis despite having had a thyroid out. Um, and thyroid disease will recur. So if they've had Graves' disease once, there's a very good chance it will come back again at some point in the future. So just because they had treatment, um, you know, several years ago doesn't mean it can't be a problem again, because actually it's ch- common things being common, it actually probably will come back at some point. We've talked about looking very closely at the eyes, assessing for ophthalmoplegia. We're going to feel for neck lumps, feeling for a diffuse swelling through the neck, whether or not it's diffuse or a focal swelling looking to describe the size texture of any swelling that's there. And one thing which uh, is important is asking them to swallow as well. So if there is a glass of water in the room, that can be um, helpful. Checking regional lymph nodes as well. I guess one important thing which you would have to correlate with the history as well is a tenderness in the neck when you're palpating, which may be indicative of a thyroiditis. The only other thing to do in the neck would be to auscultate for bruise which if I'm right, Jodie, it's, it's to do with increased blood flow to the thyroid because it's become so enlarged and, and overactive. Yeah, so you normally only find bruises in, in a patient who's thyrotoxic. So, um, and it's just due to the increased, like you said, the increased blood flow and the increased activity from from the thyroid. Um, I think on a day to day basis, it's it's not something we really worry about too much. But again, from from an exam purpose, it just demonstrates that you know you're, you're demonstrating what you're looking for, um, and the examiner will know that by listening for a brewery, you're thinking about somebody who might have thyrotoxicosis. And then going away from the specific signs, there are a vast array of more general signs, which you would do as part of a more thorough systemic examination. But just thinking about the really simple things and going through the examination of any other system. So looking at the hands, are they warm? Are they sweaty? Do they have a fine tremor if their hands are outstretched or are they cold? Is the skin very dry? Just to demonstrate that you're looking for clear differences, which would um, indicate thyroid status. Um, And obviously feeling their pulse if they're tachycardic or bradycardic either way. And the presence of atrial fibrillation, which might indicate that they are thyrotoxic. And then there's a few sort of gold star things, which I don't know if I ever actually got round to to doing these just because you're so pressed for time but something like a proximal myopathy, assessing deep tendon reflexes and looking for pre-tibial myxedema are all sort of signs in the legs, which might be consistent with thyroid disease as well. But it sort of goes above and beyond what you're expected to do in clinic, Jodie. I guess it's more checking their thyroid function and, and going from there, really. So, I mean, a lot of these things, are, as we've mentioned, things are quite rare. We rarely actually see them in clinical practice. 
I think from a foreign point of view, at the very minimum, you need to check their eyes, and that's regardless of whether they have symptoms of thyroid eye disease or not. I, I always check everybody's eyes because it is relevant in terms of your management for the patient's long term. So again, even if they're presenting with thyroid symptoms, just make sure that you haven't got any thyroid eye disease. Check their neck. I always get patients to outstretch their hands um, because very obvious if they've got a tremor, you can feel their pulse, you can feel their palms. And, and actually, generally, that's the most you need to, to do. So that will give you all the information that you need. The sort of thyroid acropatchy and pretubal myxedema are very specific signs uh, relating to Graves' disease um, specifically, but they're pretty rare and it's very, you know, be very unusual if you find them. Um, and I don't think it's the end of the world if you don't look for them. But it just, again, it just it just shows the examiner that you know that these are very specific features of Graves' disease. Um, and so looking for them just indicates that. Um, and it only takes, you know, two seconds to check for edema in somebody's um legs so i mean i'll just say the mixed edema itself actually isn't really edema it's just um overlying skin changes they kind of get like a, an, an orange type orange peel type color to their skin it's yeah it takes two seconds to look for it so there's no harm in looking for it but i also wouldn't worry too much if it's the bit you don't get to and reflexes is just really non-specific and not actually that helpful so again you can say that you would do it at the end if you had more time you'd do a full neurological examination and check for reflexes but i wouldn't worry about trying to get that into your examination agreed so once you get to the end of your examination you'll be expected to present the patient back to the examiner with your findings followed by some questions from them so me and jody we're going to take a very quick break but don't go anywhere because when we're back we'll be covering the common questions you might be asked by the examiners and hopefully give you some correct answers so go and get a cup of tea and we'll be back in just a couple of moments First of all, Jodie, let's presume that we have taken a history from a patient who is clearly describing symptoms of thyrotoxicosis. So they're sweaty, they've got palpitations, diarrhea, they're hot and flushed, they've been anxious. The first question, I guess, is what are the possible causes of a patient who is obviously thyrotoxic? Yeah, so there's two there's two main causes to to bear in mind, and then there's some rarer ones. So the two main ones that we would always consider are Graves' thyrotoxicosis, which is um, an autoimmune cause, and also a toxic multinodular goiter. Um, and those are by far and away the most common causes of, of thyrotoxicosis that we see on a daily basis. Um, the other things that you have to keep in mind are that some patients will have a, a single toxic nodule. So um, it's just one nodule that is causing problems, but um, you can't really tell the difference between that and a multinodular goiter until you've done investigations for patients who've got a much shorter history or who might have a history of uh, neck tenderness or postpartum as we discussed earlier or have had a recent sort of viral or um, bacterial illness those um, people you might start thinking of this more thyroiditis is this just an acute phase um, of an infection and um, or something that will generally settle and, and that's very much characterized by neck pain so anybody with neck pain and tenderness and um, thyroiditis is generally something that we would consider um, and that's often self-resolving and, and sort of sort itself out without needing to do very much so it's important to always just bear that in mind as part of your diagnosis um, but you can get um, thyroiditis that happen without pain so don't get totally sidetracked by the fact that it's painless and most of the, the post-pregnancy ones generally are, are painless. So it, we can usually just tell by, by the pattern of the bloods and, and how well the patient is. A lot of it's just giving it time to see what happens. Um, and then as we alluded to earlier, medication is the other big factor. So, so making sure we take a good drug history and also just consider what people might be taking over the counter. Um, so the main one there would be seaweed, so iodine. Um, so people are supplementing with sort of health foods and um, iodine tablets and have certainly seen it over the over the years so you know don't just think of what, what's prescribed but it, are they taking anything else that they may think is harmless but they haven't necessarily realized might be causing a problem yeah interesting and um if we go on to the other sort of set of patients which we discussed which are those presenting with a, a thyroid nodule or a thyroid lump what are the possible uh, differentials of someone who's coming with a, a thyroid lump and we're sort of going to exclude all the other potential head and neck type diagnoses because there are, there are plenty of those we're focusing on those that originate from the thyroid itself 
you know, it will depend a little bit on how long the lump has been there for. If it's something that's new and that's come on over a short period of time, then obviously you need to think about thyroid cancer. That would be, you know, it's got to be your top differential for as a diagnosis um, to exclude. If it's something that's been there for a longer period of time, then you'd be thinking more like, is this a thyroid cyst? Um, is this a just a single large nodule that you can feel? Is this part of a multinodular goitrin that's just got bigger over time and now we're starting to, to notice it? quite unusual to be able to just feel a single um, adenoma but depending on where it's located within the thyroid you could certainly there's no reason why you couldn't palpate it so so those would be your main differentials most thyroid lumps are generally benign but it's just making sure that we're picking up those that are malignant so although they're the less they're far less frequent obviously they're the ones that have more significant impact on patients so it's just making sure that you're always always thinking at the back of mind whether that could be a case or not yeah. And then leading on from there, you'll often be asked about what investigations and management would you plan for this patient? And and hopefully in your history taking, you'll have already made a plan, but um, this is where you'll have to sort of justify that to the examiners. Surprisingly enough, Jody, I think usually the first thing on everyone's list would be thyroid function tests. Would you agree? Yeah, I mean, you definitely know what the thyroid status is. Um, it's going to completely change your management um, and help you you know, with what you do with the patient long term. So, um, so yeah, you want to know what the TSH is and you want to know what the T3 and the T4 is. And then the other thing that's really important as well is a TSH receptor antibody. That will be uh, strongly positive in patients with Graves disease um, and also patients with thyroid eye disease. And um, so, as I said earlier, you can get uh, thyroid eye disease in the absence of thyrotoxicosis. And the reason for that is because the thyroid eye disease is caused by um, the TSH receptor antibodies. Um, and so it's the antibody resort that's the most useful in terms of um, supporting that diagnosis from a blood test point of view. And differentiating between Graves disease and a multinodular goiter is really important because the long term management can differ between those two. Yeah. And you wouldn't expect a patient with multinodular goiter to have those TSH receptor antibodies. No, so generally they're negative. So you get so multinodular goitres are actually really common. So you can get some patients that have a mixed picture, and they will have Graves' disease on the background of a multinodular goitre, and that is that is you know perfectly possible. But for the most part, for the antibodies will be negative in the context of somebody with a multinodular goitre, or it's, if it's a single toxic nodule, um, or they've got other reasons, so like thyroiditis, or it's it's medication induced. Um, amiodarone is a little bit different because it could go either way. It could they could have antibodies that. Are positive because amiodarone can precipitate autoimmune um viral disease so that doesn't um so that just helps you differentiate between the different types but yeah so as a general rule of thumb we would expect it to be negative yeah and just uh i know it's probably obvious to you jody but just in in the interpretation of the thyroid function tests in a thyrotoxic patient you'd expect the tsh to be low and the t3 and t4 to be raised and those would be the opposites in a patient with hypothyroidism or underactive thyroid? Yeah, ge- yeah. For, for generally speaking, I mean, the thing to bear in mind is you also get patients with both subclinical and hyper and hypothyroidism. So that's where you just get the change in the TSH, but the T4 and the T3 remain normal. And um, those are also really important to identify because even if you have a su- fully suppressed TSH, but a normal T4 and T3, you have an increased risk of developing atrial fibrillation and osteoporosis long term. So we would still treat those. And the patients with multinodular goitres are the ones that are more likely, generally speaking, to have a subclinical picture. So they're actually often not very symptomatic from their thyroid, but they are at risk of developing complications if you don't treat it. So it is just as important to recognise those groups of patients, because if you can prevent someone getting AF and then their subsequent strokes, then, then obviously that you know, makes a huge difference to them. So yeah, to just bear in mind that you can, you do get sort of more subtle changes that can be just as relevant. And we discussed a little bit earlier about red flags, which you'd be concerned about urgent referral to ophthalmology. And we mentioned any sort of impending visual loss, loss of visual acuity or complex ophthalmoplegia. Those are the sorts of things where you'd want to almost lead out straight away and say, as well as obviously working the patient up, this patient is um, has got impending ophthalmology emergency which would need urgent management and so you'd refer them appropriately 
Yeah, absolutely. Those, those are the patients. I mean, the ophthalmologists generally are, are quite happy to see all of our patients with thyroid eye disease because they're the kind of patients that if you can start treatment early on, you can prevent a lot of long term problems. So it, you really want to get the treatment started before the inflammation gets really bad. But it's just, again, it's trying to work out how urgent you refer them. And, and those things that you've just talked about are those that ophthalmology you need to see them as quickly as possible. And having said that, there are some things you can do if they've got severe inflammation or you're really worried about them, you can just start steroids and, and they often need quite a high dose prednisolone usually around sort of 60 milligrams and um, some patients end up on IV mifar prednisolone as well but they, that's something you can start in clinic that day if you're really worried about somebody's eyes you don't necessarily need to wait for ophthalmology to initiate that um, for the patients who've got more mild or moderate disease you can advise them to take selenium and um, you can just buy in the health shops so they, don't, they don't need a prescription but there's fairly good evidence that um, taking selenium every day helps with um, eye disease and to settle things down as well as sort of the topical lubricants and, and things that and general protective measures of the eyes that we talked about earlier in more severe cases because quite often in patients they'll push you and push you saying okay well you know that doesn't work okay what next what if that doesn't work so if the steroids don't work what's the next step for those patients so over the last few years, um, the management uh, has changed quite a lot in, in the same way that for a lot of other um, immune conditions in that a lot of the immunomodulators are now being used to manage thyroid eye disease. So things like rituximab and, and similar agents. You can also use um, radiotherapy. So they have very um, sort of very specific radiation to the orbits um, to try and minimise, um, again, the damage. Absolute worst case scenario, you can do surgery with orbital decompression. Um, but that's sort of the, quite a bit down the line from where you start. You, what you want to do is try and get the information settled as much as possible and reduce the active disease before you do any sorts of surgery. And surgery is kind of the last ditch um, attempt, unless you've got somebody with absolutely life threat, you know, sight threatening symptoms, in which case you're obviously not going to want to delay surgery. Yeah. So if we move on to uh, the management of a patient who has come in with um, thyroid related symptoms, whether that's uh, hypothyroidism or thyrotoxicosis, I guess the the treatment for a patient with an underactive thyroid is relatively straightforward. That's just uh, levothyroxine supplementation. But there are other things to assess with that, for example, their cholesterol. So quite often in hypothyroid patients, they do have raised cholesterol. Yeah. So yeah, so actually the cholesterol can improve if you improve somebody's thyroid function. So it can, um, yeah, so just treating somebody with thyroxine can, can result in an improvement in lipids. So um, it's definitely something to, to reassess. And um, I think from my point of view, that the, the key thing about thyroxine is to make sure that patients are taking it um, on an empty stomach at least half an hour before feed because calcium in particular interferes with the absorption of thyroxine. So if you have it with your breakfast, you know cereal and coffee you may not actually absorb your thyroxine if you take it at the same time and the same with calcium supplements so if anyone's on calcium supplements they're always advised to take it a good few hours after the thyroxine so that you're not getting interference um, and it's something that's really simple but actually gets um, forgotten about a lot and, and can explain why some patients just don't do well with thyroxine and it's just simply that they're not absorbing it properly so then we come to our patients who've come in and they are clearly thyrotoxic let's just say for argument's sake that it's a it's a patient who has graves they've got thyroid eye disease and they're clinically thyrotoxic what's the usual treatment like for a patient who's coming with graves so um so there's two parts of the treatment so one is symptomatic treatment so we use propanolol generally and um, for symptom management and um, so if you've got somebody who's got symptoms of palpitations and um, their heart rate's high or they're and they've got anxiety and tremors so the propanolol will work on a very as a very good short-term option to to manage their symptoms whilst we're waiting for the other treatments to work um, and we generally use a dose of 40 milligrams tds as a starting dose and, and that can be weaned down as, as they get better um, propanolol specifically is used because it does reduce the um, sort of conversion to t4 in the peripheries so it does help a little bit to also reduce um, some of the, the t4 load as well and, and then it comes to medications for specifically for the thyroid. And we've only really got two options for treatment um, in terms of medication, and that's carbamazole and propofol uracil. You can do two regimes. You can either block and replace them, so which is where you give them a really high dose of carbamazole and give them thyroxine alongside it so that you're essentially, um, um, and then they, they stay on that for, for a long time. Um, the other option is a titration regime. And I think most places now, I think, would use titration as their first line. I, block and replace tends to be reserved for patients with um, thyroid eye disease because you don't want the fluctuations in their thyroid function. 
But for most people, the titration regime is just so much better. So normally start off on quite high doses of carbimazole or propofuracil, which is usually dependent on what their thyroid function is doing, um, and then wean it down as their thyroid function gets better. The most important thing to remember with those medications, if, if you've got a woman who's of childbearing age, or they're breastfeeding or planning for pregnancy, then um, you should be using propofuracil rather than carbimazole. And um, the guidance is slowly changing and actually probably low dose carbamazole is probably okay during the first trimester of pregnancy but at the moment most centers are still using um, PTU as their first line so generally the safer approach is to use PTU and then switch to carbamazole if needed um, and just make sure you tell the patient about the risk of a granulocytosis um, so if they were to get a severe sore throat they need to stop taking it and make sure they go and have a blood test to check their white cell count it's very rare but we do see it and it is something that can cause quite significant problems if they develop it. So it is just something that you just need to make sure, again, that you're telling patients about. I'm sure in the paces, they would certainly expect you to know that that's the, the only side effect you need to warn people about. Otherwise, they're pretty well tolerated. Um, so those that's sort of the main sort of treatment strategies at the initial outset. Um, and that's sort of, you know, what you would be expected to, to understand from the initial management. I know that one treatment option is the use of radioiodine. When would you think about using radioiodine and what sort of instructions would you tell your patients about it before they consider it as, a, as an option? Yeah, so um, so we can use it at any stage if, if patients really want to. Um, but for most people, um, especially for Graves' disease, um, they will um, have a course of carbimazole, usually for 18 months, up to two years, and then we stop treatment and see what happens. Now, about 30% of people will only ever need one course of treatment, um, and that's that'll be the end of the story for them. It will just sort of the antibodies will will go, um, and they'll never get a problem again. Uh, it does mean about you know sort of two thirds of people will relapse at some point in the future. So it's got a very high relapse rate, unfortunately. And um, so those patients who've relapsed, that's when you then think about definitive treatment. And so you think about radioactive iodine or surgery. Um, I mean, you can stay on long-term carbimazole, depends on the patient preference and whether they've got other medical problems or how old they are. So there's lots of factors to take into place. And a lot of it comes down to patient preference. For people who've got toxic multilateral goiters, though, um, or toxic nodules, and actually radioactive iodine works really well for them because those nodules take up all the iodine um, and then it allow, and so they essentially die off or, or stop working because of the iodine and then the rest of the gland carries on working as normal. So they often don't need thyroxine treatments after it. So it can actually be a really good first-line treatment for them. The main problems with radioactive iodine is the isolation they have to go through afterwards. Now, uh, after the last year we've all had, I'm sure actually... <laughs> Probably not balk at two weeks of isolation because I think people have gone through a lot worse. I think our response to telling people they've got to isolate at home after radioactive iodine might change in the future. Who knows? But yeah, generally they have to avoid um, young children. You know, kind of if they work in a public you know environment with lots of contact with people, they would need to have work and things. So the actual treatment itself is really easy, but the restrictions may may put people off, particularly women who. Have uh, are planning pregnancy or have young children at home it's just not an option for them um, so you know there's, there's those things to think about but it is actually really effective and works really well for a lot of people it may or may not leave you with an underactive thyroid afterwards um, so it just is a little bit dependent on what the underlying cause of, of treatment is the biggest thing though for radioactive iodine is that if you have active thyroid eye disease is that radioiodine will make your thyroid eye disease worse. So we wouldn't offer radioiodine in somebody who's got um, any, any sort of ongoing problems with thyroid eye disease. Perfect. We've covered an awful lot there for two minutes of questions, but hopefully that will come in handy for some of our listeners who are imminently about to sit paces. So I think that's all we've got uh, time for, but um, coming up after the next break, we are going to be quizzing Jodie on her special subject of the Great British Bake Off. So we're going to take another very short break. Um, we'll be back right after this, where we are quizzing Dr. Jodie Sabin on the Great British Bake Off. And welcome back to the Pre-Paces podcasts. We all know that consultants are experts in their field, but what else occupies the brilliant minds of our consultants that isn't medicine? I'm asking each and every consultant who comes on the show to give me a specialist subject of their own choosing with one golden rule, that it isn't anything to do with medicine at all. And whoever comes out on top at the end of the series will bag a coveted Pre-Paces podcast mug. 
So Jody, remind us again, what have you chosen as your special subject and why? That's right, I picked The Great British Bake Off, um, basically because I watched the show and that's about the only thing I can think of that might appeal to everybody else as well, so we'll see. And are you much of a baker yourself? Uh, I do enjoy baking when I have time. I don't go to quite the same levels that they they do on the show. Um, (laughs) I don't get decorated, that's for sure. So we are giving you the opportunity to win a coveted pre-paces podcast mug. The rules are the 10 questions. And if you answer without taking the multiple choice options, you'll get two points. But if you're struggling, you can ask for four multiple choice options. And if you get it after that, you get one point. So there's 20 points in total that you could get. So 10 quickfire questions on the Great British Bake Off. Are you ready? Yeah, go for it. Question number one. In what year was the first series of the Great British Bake Off? Oh, so I think they just had their 10-year anniversary. So I think it was 2010. Correct. For two points. Question number two. In each episode, the bakers face three challenges. The signature the technical and what other challenge oh, the showstopper challenge and that is correct for another two points question number three who replaced mary berry as judge on the show in 2017 that was truly another two points question number four what channel did bake-off move to in 2017 from the bbc channel four that is correct again is this going to be a clean sweep Question number five, name one of the two spin-off shows broadcast in the UK that start with great. As in not a baking show? It's Yeah, so it's one of the spin-off shows from the Bake Off that include the, the it's the great. Uh, um, the great British sewing bee? Yes, correct. Another two points. Question number six, in 2017, Prue Leith upset fans of the show in an off-screen controversy. What happened? Oh, she announced the winner on Twitter before the show was out. Absolutely correct. Question seven. In episode four of series five, Ian threw his bake in the bin after what went wrong. Um, I think that was something to do with the ice cream melting. Uh, I can't remember what they were making, but uh, I think it's something to do with something haven't frozen properly. Okay, I'm going to give you the two points. Uh, it, it was You're absolutely correct. It was the Baked Alaska. After this happened, what did Ian present to the judges? I think he just handed them the bin, didn't he? <laughs> he did. Correct. He handed them the bin with his ruined bake in it. Question number nine. We are on for a clean sweep. In the 2020 series, who replaced Sandy Toxvig as host? Oh, um, Matt Lucas. That is correct. Question 10. What is the show known as in the USA? Oh, I don't know this one. Um, I don't know. You'll have to give me more choices. I'll give you you the options. Um, Is it A, the American Baking Competition? B, the USA Baking Bonanza? C, the American Dream Bake? Or D, the big American show about baking? Um, I'm going to go for A. It is A, which gives you a near perfect score of 19 out of 20. She is leading the way in Quiz the Consultant with a near perfect score. Jodie, thank you so much for joining us on Quiz the Consultant. And thank you so much for giving us all your expertise related to thyroid disease and baking. And it's clear you've chosen the specialist subject for you. I'm not sure that's a good sign or not. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. So thank you so much for joining us, Jodie. Um, it's been it's been really great to hear from an esteemed expert about everything to do with thyroid disease. So thank you so much for joining us today. That's okay. You're welcome. And it's always a pleasure to bring you these episodes when we're joined by someone who's an esteemed expert. So if you like the podcast, please like, comment and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can also get in touch via the usual social media channels on Twitter and Instagram. It's at prepacespodcast or on email. It's prepacespodcast at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time on the Pre Paces Podcast. <laughs>